Okay, I'm going to stop my share and we'll get started. Uh, so welcome back to our last uh, colloquium of the semester. I'm glad that everyone has joined us. Today we're going to hear from the Ag Biofuse Cohort 2, and they're going to give us a nice synopsis of what they've been up to and where they're headed. Um, so I think in order to save time, we'll just get started. So, All right, then I'll get us started. So hi, everyone. My name is Andrew Hardwick. And I'm going to be starting off our presentations today. You're going to hear from nine of us, though. Um, so our presentation is on a initial perspectives on a research agenda for bioengineered crops for carbon capture and sequestration. So these BCCS crops are, at first glance, a technological fix to address climate change. But as you'll see throughout our presentation, it's a lot more nuanced and complex when we start to dive in uh, the use of this technology for climate change and mitigation. And so um, to add to that, um, I'm part of a group called Ag Biofuse, stands for Agricultural Biological um, Technology for Food, Energy, and Water Systems. I'm part of a two-year fellowship, me and eight others who are presenting today. Uh, we've been working together for two years now. This is kind of the accumulation of our work into this final research agenda we're going to present to you now. So I'll go to the next slide and we can introduce each of ourselves. There we go. I'll let you go first, Sandy. Hi, my name is Sandy Etheridge. I am in the Crop and Soil Sciences Department, um, and I am currently studying weed ecology and biology. My name is Jabina Maud. I'm a PhD student in plant and microbial biology, and I study plant microbial interactions in wheat. Hi, everybody. My name is Salvador, and I'm in the plant and microbial biology. I'm a third year doctoral student. Hi, everybody. My name is Delicia Utley. I'm a third year PhD student in the plant and microbial biology department. Hi, everyone. My name is Dana Mugisa. I'm a second year PhD student in the biological and agriculture engineering department. Everyone, my name is Andrew Hardwick. I am a second year PhD student in public administration, doing a lot of work on responsible research and innovation. Good day, everybody. My name is Joseph Apokugapo. I'm in the Interdisciplinary Studies Program. My focus is on agriculture and communications. Uh, hi, I'm Jamie. I'm currently a second year econ PhD student, and I'm focusing on agricultural environmental economics. Uh, yes, I don't know why my name is Jamie, but you know, my name is Sebastian. I work in the governance on science and technology issues. So now that you've met everybody in the cohort, um, we wanted to take a few minutes to give you some context of this project and what we've been working on. So as part of the Ag Biofuse Fellowship, um, we were tasked with a collaborative cohort project related to agricultural biotechnology and food, energy, and water systems. And as you can imagine, that's very broad. So our cohort spent some time trying to figure out what we were interested in, and we wanted to agriculture and climate change. And that also is really broad. So we ended up looking at a specific piece of technology that Angie mentioned, bioengineered crops for carbon capture and sequestration. And we really wanted to understand, you know, what this technology is, um, you know, what are obstacles to adopting this technology? And a lot of this is a challenge because this technology is emerging. It's being developed, but it's not actually out in the marketplace yet. So there were a lot of unanswered questions. And when we discovered that there were so many unanswered questions, we thought, 
you know, a research agenda exploring the knowledge gaps and identifying what we know and what we don't know makes a lot of sense. So we made a target audience of research funders and we decided to put together this comprehensive project that explores the technology, the regulations of the regulatory system, the economics and perceptions so that we can guide research funders on, you know, where do we need to use our resources and where do we need to focus our energy and efforts and identify knowledge gaps surrounding this technology. So keeping that context in mind, I'm going to hand it off to Sandy, who's going to introduce sort of the problem we're trying to address. Okay, so a bit of an introduction. Um, next slide. Um, agriculture is one of the three sectors that produce the largest proportion of carbon emissions, but it's also the most vulnerable sectors to the shifts that climate change can bring. Uh, the future challenges of climate change are forcing farmers to adapt their practices in order to maintain the productivity of their crops and manage risks better. These adaptations to climate change will be crucial in the future of food security and are challenges that should be addressed to the entire agricultural system in order to create effective solutions for these problems. Uh, some mitigation efforts have already been put into place to reduce the agricultural greenhouse gas emissions, but there's also a call to develop and begin utilizing new management and technological approaches in order to minimize the inputs of crop production. Next slide. So in order to combat, combat these complex issues in the agricultural system brought about by climate change, um, diverse and interdisciplinary solutions must be taken into consideration. Carbon capture and sequestration in these systems includes a complex interaction between environmental, social, and technological innovations in addition to the diverse stakeholders that should be included when trying to understand these complex issues. So our group decided that through a socio-technological lens, we were going to look at connections of disciplinary questions that should be addressed in future carbon capture and sequestration technology and policy. From this analysis, we then provide recommendations in order to focus on critical interdisciplinary topics that need to be addressed when implementing bioengineered technology for carbon capture and sequestration in agriculture. Next slide. Okay, so uh, as we've seen in previous slides, um, bioengineering crops can be sort of like framed as a sort of like the solution or one of the solutions for climate change, but that, that opens up uh, a debate about um, technological fixes in different types of, of settings. Like um, there are a lot of um, research in the field of science and technology studies and sustainable development to sort of like counter this narrative that uh, we just need to focus on silver bullet solution, solutions to address these, these challenges. So the way we, we approach it is to sort of like broaden up this, this approach to include uh, the, the context in which technologies are developed, uh, such as the social context, economic context, political context, and how these, these contexts shape uh, technologies and sort of like address the needs of not just the developers, but also the users of the technologies and other types of st stakeholders, such as carbon brokers, farmers, you know, different types of, of of, of actors that are involved in this in these uh, in these processes, so um, that's why we are attack, um, addressing this issue as an interdisciplinary uh, challenge, uh, and we are going to 
go further with the implications of the what what will that mean for uh, our specific case uh, yeah so uh, next slide please So one of the unique aspects and strengths of our team was that we come from so many different backgrounds. We have folks in natural sciences who really understand the technology. We have folks in social sciences who understand the economics, the social implications and the regulatory process. And so we really have this as a strength. We could map out connections within the socio-technical framework that looked at the technology, at the economics, at the regulations, at the perceptions. And this is so important to us because, you know, when we first looked at this technology, there's, it seemed pretty simple, but as you would delve deeper into it, you realize that its development, its adoption, its implications are much more complex. And we recognize that sometimes promising technologies fail because you don't see all these connections. So it was really important for us to focus on each of these connections. And throughout your presentation, you will see that we've color coded where these connections exist. So blue is anything that has related to technology, yellow for regulations, green for economics, and pink for perceptions. And you'll see this come back again at the end of our presentation when we make our recommendations for a research agenda. And so that first aspect that we're gonna look at is technological development. Some aspects of technological development have reached the mainstream media and there have been reports uh, surrounding aspects of the technology. Here you see some of the, the major headlines that have, that have reached mainstream media. Um, and so each of these addresses a different aspect of agricultural biotechnology as a way to mitigate climate change. If we go to the next slide, we'll be able to see an approach that is commonly taken by scientists across the United States. Uh, this one here on the left is, is, is what Salk Institute is doing over in La Jolla, California. They want to develop what they call psych ideal plants. These plants have an enhanced root architectural system. They also are capable of producing plant biopolymers that are beneficial in, the, in, in capturing carbon and sequestering it into the soil for long term. The approach that they take, as well as other scientists in the United States, is that of first identifying the genes that are responsible in these types of mechanisms. Once they identify the genes, the next step is to test them in model organisms, primarily Arabidopsis. But then it's important to transfer these genes and see if the same effects are seen in, in, in crops. So this is what's currently happening at the moment. They have field trials around the United States and are essentially awaiting results to see if this approach has been successful. But there is also another approach that Delicia will talk to you about. So another big approach that people are focused on are metabolic pathways, such as the photosynthetic pathway. And just to give you all a reminder, because we haven't been in high school biology for a while, photosynthesis is when a plant uses carbon dioxide and water with the help of light to make sugar and oxygen. And the C3 plants are the simplest photosynthetic system around, especially in agricultural crops such as cotton and soybean. And here, um, C C3 crops are less efficient at fixing CO2 because CO2 comes in, Rubisco 
has a chance to grab CO2 or oxygen, most likely is grabbing oxygen, making it less efficient at fixing that CO2 in C3 plants versus C4 plants such as corn that has a system in place where all the CO2 is localized in one specific place, acting as a pump for Rubisco to grab onto it and fix it in a more efficient way. And this allows our C4 plants to be 15 to 30% more efficient than C3 plants. So working in that photosynthetic pathway is seen as a promising way to help improve carbon capture and sequestration in plants. And in order to measure this, Dana will talk more about carbon measurement. So as seen and shared in the previous slides, um, it's now evident that this technology is very feasible and there are actually companies and industries or different institutions that are developing this technology. However, one question whose answer we couldn't find in any publicly available literature was the efficacy of this technology. In other words, how much carbon um, is this technology able or how much carbon will it be able to sequester from the atmosphere into the soil? Um, so before diving into how our group suggests that this question best be approached, it's important to mention that quantification of greenhouse gases or soil organic carbon in our context is actually a very complicated task to achieve, um, mostly because of the fact that soil organic carbon itself is very, it has a high temporal and spatial variability in the soil. And as a result, there are a number of, as seen in this slide, there are a number of methods and approaches that are currently used in agriculture to come up with these estimations or the carbon estimations from either the soil or the plant samples. So as you could see, there are different methods. There is no gold standard to which one is better than the other. Every method here has a pro and a con. And um, most researchers really rely on which resources they have available to them to be able to decide on which method to use. So while having very many methods provides flexibility to the researchers, but it also adds another layer of complexity on quantifying um, these different gases um, such as carbon. And basically because of the fact that the methodological differences then do not really help when it comes to comparing the estimates that the different researchers have at hand. So with this in mind, um, in our research agenda, we actually recommend that, um, that we utilize the, the current knowledge that is known as shared by Saul and, and Delicia, and that is the knowledge about the physiological changes that are being made to these plants and the different pathways and incorporate those into process-based models to be able to quickly um, avail the public or even other researchers um, with an estimate of, how, of what these plants or curbs are able to do to the environment. So with this, we'll go to the next slide. All right, thank you, Dana. And I'll start us off here talking about regulations and regulatory process. So there are a number of different things you could talk about in this area, and we picked a few in particular we thought were uh, most relevant for BECCS crops. So the first aspect that I'll talk about is the regulatory approval process. Um, so for example, in the regulatory approval process, um, there have been a number of different studies that try to estimate uh, the cost as a barrier to developing for example, BECCS technology. And there's a number of different aspects you look at for uh, regulatory 
sorry, costs that make it hard to understand this issue. For example, the actual cost of regulation itself, the opportunity cost for how long it takes to get your product after it's been developed to market or other uh, similar financial costs come up in studies. Um, relating to this then is this barrier cost is um, a narrowing of what kind of crops get through this regulatory process. So there's been studies in the past that show that there's a number of different crops and traits and such that have been developed, um, but they're not able to get past the regulatory process for um, X number of reasons. Um, and related to this is, uh, for example, one past study found under older U.S. regulatory process that took a number of years, normally on average, to get a crop through. You see that number there, 2,467 days. Um, now we have, as many of you know, the SECURE rule, which is supposed to streamline the process. At least that's the claim of the USDA. But we don't know, for example, how many days in on average would it take under SECURE now for a crop to get through that regulatory process. And we think this is important in terms of the ECCS crops in particular, because these crops are supposed to address climate change, which uh, commonly there's this idea of this alarm bell of we need to get on climate change, do as much as possible, as quick as possible. And so we think this adds a little bit of urgency to this area. Pass off to Jabeen. So another place in the regulatory system where we think, um, you know, BECCS crops can play a role and where the regulatory system can play a role is this idea of carbon labeling. Because of their genetic enhancements, BECCS crops will likely have a higher cost. And if we want them to be used to mitigate climate change, then there's going to be efforts needed to promote their use and to encourage people to buy products with them or to make products with them. Um, a lot of this is can be done through possibly carbon labeling. Um, labeling is used as a way to market for producers, but also as a way to inform and to help um, advertise for customers and consumers. Um, but the issue is, is that while there is an interest in providing carbon labeling um, to introduce carbon costs, there is a lack of standards across what the labels are, what they mean, what they measure, and a lack of regulation. So the regulatory system can play a role in this, especially if they want to use it as a way to market or promote the use of BECCS crops. And if you can look from the graphic, you can see three different ways that carbon labels are currently used right now. There's a letter grading scheme, a carbon footprint number and measured in grams, and then um, a nonprofit that does its own sort of carbon measuring labels and all of these are different. What they measure is different. And so the regulatory system actually can play a role here in order to help determine, you know, how do we need to standardize these labels so they're informative and not misleading. But we also need to look a little bit further and, you know, ask the question of whether these labels will actually promote the adoption and purchase of BECCS crops or products derived from those crops. And do labeling even actually help us with, you know, changing consumer habits or changing the way that we um, produce products such that we are actually reducing carbon emissions or expenditures, because the point of the crops is to help mitigate climate change. So closely linked to the conversation around labeling is the issue of perception when it comes to bioengineered um, carbon capture sequestration crops, bioengineered or genetically engineered crops. Um, the, the point being that Usually, people hold varying perceptions when it comes to varying issues. People have their own perception about the environment, about the food that they eat, and these perceptions could actually vary. And perceptions are just impressions that people have about things. The impressions could be accurate, 
or otherwise, but they hold those perceptions and that's what will usually influence decisions they take as far as those specific products are concerned. And that's also true for a future bioengineered carbon capture sequestration crop, because as we've seen, the currently existing bioengineered crops or genetically modified crops, there is widespread perception that people hold about them. Um, this is a poll from Pew Research Center, which shows that in Russia, for example, up to 70% of those who were surveyed thought that genetically modified foods or bioengineered crops are unsafe. Meanwhile, in America, that figure was around 38%. Another search poll has shown that when it comes to bioengineered crops generally and also um, genetically modified crops, uh, women are usually more skeptical about its safety than men. So as the conversation happens around developing um, a bioengineered carbon capture sequestration crop, obviously perception that people hold about these would become very key in decisions to adopt or otherwise. Next slide, please. So um, from research, we found that there's some form of uncertainty when it comes to the attitudes that people hold about this bioengineered CCS crops, which could become available in future. People have perceptions and hold attitudes when it comes to genetically modified crops or bioengineered crops and also climate change and all. But when it comes to BCCS crops, Schumitel observed that uh, there are no strong attitudes currently. There are currently no identified preferences among people when it comes to these carbon removal technologies as far as crops are concerned. And it's probably because these crops are still very much under development. Uh, but one other observation is that the weight that someone places on the problem that a technology is aimed at addressing would definitely influence whether they would adopt that technology or otherwise. So if you are selling um, a bioengineered carbon capture sequestration crop, if a farmer perceives climate change to be a big problem, the chances of them adopting it is very much high. And so we make the point that in any possible research agenda, the issue of validating and assessing the way that farmers and others place on issues like climate change is very much crucial. And the third important thing that would greatly influence people's um, adoption otherwise of these crops have to do with familiarity as far as these technologies are concerned. We found in the work that Sega et al. did in 2014, that when it comes to adoption of technologies, it's hugely influenced by the level of knowledge that people have about the technology, any possible experiences that they may have about the technology, and also the trust that people may have in those developing the technology, as well as the potential cost, the risk, and the benefits that are associated with the technology. So obviously, these are all areas that more research should be seen as far as a possible future bioengineered carbon capture sequestration crop is concerned. Next slide. So when trying to understand the adoption research and regulation that surround these BECCS crops, I think it's also important to consider the public and private opportunities uh, for funding to promote this new technology. Next slide. So some, there are some current programs at the federal and state level that provide federal or that provide funding for farmers for car carbon smart farming practices. But this is only uh, concerning practices such as use of cover crops or no-tilling on their farms. Um, and these are seen in the blue. Uh, so you have the equip, the CSP, and then various state specific uh, funding sources for these kinds of practices. 
Um, but then when we were doing our research, we also found um, that if farmers wanted to adopt this new BECCS crop, there were other programs such as the RCPP or the Partnerships for Climate Smart Commodities that have um, components to their um, components to entry that include using plants for carbon capture and sequestration, uh, which would be uh, something that would be beneficial for growers and um, and research scientists to be able to take advantage of uh, to be able to implement this new technology. So in addition to public programs that pay farmers by practices and provide funding for pilot projects, we also have carbon markets um, where farmers can earn additional income by the specifically by the ton of carbon they sequester in the soil. So there are two types of carbon markets at, for now in the US. Um, as of, um, there are two types of markets. One is the um, carbon cap and trade market regulated um, regionally or by state, and also the voluntary carbon market that's run by entrepreneurial broker companies. So since the federal, um, since the state or regional regulated cap and trade programs tend to be more restrictive, they allow only climate smart farming practices, and it could be more rigid in terms of adding in BECCS crops, we wanted to put our attention to the voluntary offset um, carbon market where the companies themselves make the rules. So next slide. So over here, this is the ad carbon credit market. This is um, comprised of many broker companies such as Nori, Indigo Ag, Bayer, and Agrina. Over here, what they do is they find farmers uh, they recruit farmers to engage in additional regenerative farming practices, such as what Sandy said, uh, like no-till and uh, growing cover crops, to generate certificates uh, that represent one ton of carbon sequestered within the soil for at least five years, uh, depending on the company. Then they find organizations who want to reduce or um, offset emissions, uh, uh, reduce as in like, they want to offset past emissions or they want to offset current emissions. Um, and that's usually because of corporate social responsibility. So over here, you're probably wondering, how does BECCS crops fit in here? What's the big deal? So to answer that question, I'll actually be looking, um, addressing the challenges and opportunities within this market. So the biggest challenge in this market is the risk and uncertainty. If you see over here, this is the price on average for a ton a certificate representing a ton. And according to Purdue, 64% of their surveyed farmers found um, stated that this is too low for them. And we don't have a certain trajectory of this price. So there's risk in terms of not making enough money on the side. There's also a risk and uncertainty in terms of strict contract stipulations. In order for these certificates to hold, brokers need to ensure farmers don't revert back to normal practices early. So then, you know, you have carbon sequestered in the soil only for a certain years and then it just goes back in the air. And so uh, farmers can face heavy penalties. And this can be, uh, this also factors into their hesitancy. And then the third challenge here is that organizations may be hesitant to purchase certificates that are derived from BECCS crops due to perceptions regarding genetic engineering. Um, so this can be problematic. These challenges are problematic in that farmers could have a lower willingness to pay for BECCS crops because of their hesitancy on whether on the entering the carbon market 
and the concern of not getting a stream, steady stream of additional income and also potentially losing money from contract uh, uh, penalties. And then we also have opportunities in this ag carbon credit market that actually, uh, sorry. So we also have opportunities here um, due to their creative adaptation and innovation, specifically the brokers that allow BECCS crops to um, uh, do well in this market. So let's turn to the next slide. So I wanted to highlight some opportunities that are pretty impressive, even though they still struggle with some key challenges, such as I forgot to mention another key one that Dana brought up is concerns regarding measurements and modeling. And this is something they're also struggling with. But there are a lot of things that broker companies are doing. For example, uh, Nori partnered up with Ag Locust to create soil amendments, uh, microbial amendments to the soil to have enhanced carbon sequestration, which is really not that different uh, from having BECCS crops as an additional tool. We also have companies partnering up with each other and with scientists, like for example, with Soil Metrics Company to improve modeling and measurement of carbon uh, sequestration. We have a lot of companies doing webinars and answering farmers' questions and concerns. We have podcasts with scientists by these companies. They also get creative and try different strategies to increase their own value of their certificates, such as fair paying by practice, which is not normal compared to other um, carbon firms. And so this tells us that there's a lot of R&D innovation flexibility going on that will make BECCS pretty compatible with this market. Um, and in addition, we do see um, this impressive adaptation as an opportunity for responsible innovation experts to enter in and help shape this nascent market so that it becomes a more financially stable place for farmers. Next slide. If it hasn't been clear to you yet, this is kind of a complex area and there's a lot of unknowns. There's also a lot of things that um, are really promising about this technology. So as a cohort, we had a huge challenge. How do we narrow this down? We have limited resources and there's limited funding and there's limited time and the clock is also ticking on climate change and soil health. So we got together as a cohort and we really thought about what are the key questions that we would want someone to focus on? What are the key questions for a research agenda? And we broke these down into three categories, emerging crop research, commercialization, and inclusion and equity. Um, in the next three slides, you're gonna hear a little bit more about what each of these three categories mean and our recommendations. But just to give you a little bit of context, um, when we ask these research questions, we aren't looking at them just from one perspective. We want to include all of those four factors that I mentioned earlier. So you will see the questions color-coded and tagged with technology, regulations, perception, and economy, just to let you know and to remind you that these questions shouldn't just be thought about under you know, one umbrella, but should also be considered in the context of the others as well. So the first category is emerging crop research. This is largely focused on the development of the technology itself. As mentioned, this technology is in process of being developed. There are some details about how the technology will work, but we do need to recognize that with climate change, our environmental conditions are constantly changing. Um, there is greater carbon in the atmosphere that is contributing to climate change, but that also affects the way the crops develop. So it's important to ask the questions of how these crops will perform under elevated 
CO2 conditions. And that's both a question from a technological perspective, but also in terms of regulations, as explained by Sandy and um, Jamie earlier. You know, we are looking at, at companies and at governments trying to regulate carbon emissions. Um, we also need to consider, you know, will these crops still maintain their abilities for carbon capture under the environmental stress that's brought up by climate change? Climate change will impact weather conditions and all sorts of other things. Will these crops perform the same way? And finally, as talked to in depth by uh, Dana earlier, this all matters if we can accurately and properly and timely measure carbon. And we need to develop representative models for that. And those models can't just include one area of science. It's going to be a combined effort of geneticists and plant scientists and soil scientists, engineers, data scientists, to be able to develop a comprehensive model that accurately predicts carbon. So we also, um, we also created a set of funding questions for the commercialization of the ECCS crops, like when they're hitting the market. Um, so the first thing we want to highlight is regulation. So we have new uh, recent developments in UC, uh, US regulations, such as the secure rule. And um, a funding question could be, have new developments in US regulation, like the secure rule, lowered the barriers for moving through the regulatory process? Um, this is important, as um, Andrew stated, in terms of the urgency of climate change and also the importance of having broader technological innovations. Um, this actually ties in well with the second question, which is how will BECCS labeling affect consumer awareness and purchasing of derived products? Um, so over here, we're assessing what are consumers' willingness to pay essentially for the crops themselves and the products. Um, and then and the third, um, third question will be, how will crop technological performance and available public and private programs shape farmers' willingness to pay for BECCS crops? When you're considering marketing these uh, BECCS crops, you have, to consider, um, you have to consider consumers and um, the farmers' willingness to pay for these crops to determine its commercial value. Thank you, Jamie. All right, now let's talk about inclusion equity. So for context, we thought of including this aspect because for us, just looking at us, we're a diverse group, not just in terms of discipline, but also in terms of backgrounds and such. And we thought that this is an important thing to echo in our own recommendations as well for research on this area. Um, just to point out, this is these recommendations are one of main different areas that equity and inclusion can come up in. For example, other areas that could come up in this research agenda we don't necessarily touch on right here is inclusion of a number of different people in research collaboration, not just in terms of disciplines, but also groups such as historically black colleges, for example, or in terms of talking about regulatory process, the issue of equity can show up there in terms of not just large groups like Salt, in Salt Institute being able to get their technology easily through the process, also smaller time developers and such being able to participate in the development of this technology and subsequently the commercialization of their technology through uh, past regulatory process into the market. So for our area, there are three different uh, recommendations we came up with that we wanted to focus on. Two of them, the first one's focused on farmers. Um, in this case, we're talking about equity in terms of that not just like large scale farmers are able to take advantage of this technology, but also small scale farmers are able to take care take advantage of this technology and everybody in between no matter the size of their operations. So this first aspect is about information, pro providing equitable access and inclusion in terms of 
uh, information to farmers about what BECCS technology is. And so this requires really understanding a lot of different disciplines at once, understanding the perceptions of farmers, as we, as we talked about, talked about what they need to know about technology, what they need to know about the regulations around this technology, if they're going to use it, such as like getting their carbon certificate done if it's through the US government, um, as well as the economics of like, what's gonna happen if I do this? What kind of profit can I expect? In addition to that, of the idea of providing information, we don't wanna just stop there and just provide information because we see that as a bit of a technological fix if we don't also see how we can address the farmer's needs and facilitate the decision-making about BCCS crops. So again, this is the idea of how using all this mix of information, farmers can come to a decision for themselves of, do I want to use this technology or not? Where or not they choose yes or no isn't so much what we care about, but just having the support to be able to do that no matter the size of that farming operation. And lastly, this one looks more systemically was this idea of how do we incorporate trust and accountability in the programs and markets related to BECCS technologies. As we've shown, there, there's a bit of a kind of, uh, we've used in term past Wild West for the carbon market, especially the private side, as this is an emerging area. And so if we're asking, you know, dealing with this uncertainty for farmers to be taking up this technology and actually using it to address climate change, what do we need to be doing then so that they can do it without, you know, um, taking a big risk and then just it falls flat and they are out there, you know, farming operation or something. We don't want that to happen. Um, I'll pass it now to Dana. Thanks, Andrew. So as we wrap up our presentation this afternoon, um, due to the interest of time, we will not mention any names, but we'd like to thank all affiliated GS um, faculty and staff for the support and guidance that you've provided to us um, for the last two years, and most importantly, for honing our critical thinking skills and giving us the independence as we work together as a cohort. Thank you all so much. And at this point, next slide, please. We will welcome any questions, um, but most importantly, we'd love to hear your feedback as regards our research agenda and comments and happy birthday, Fred Go. Okay, that was a really nice job. Would you like to moderate your own questions or would you like me to help you out? Um, if you could direct us, Jennifer, I think that'd be helpful. Okay, great. Um, we have several questions in the chat. So we'll start with Paul. Paul, would you like to unmute yourself and ask your question? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it, everybody who made these uh, comments. This is a really interesting opportunity, I think, for agriculture, but I think many concerns at the moment about carbon markets and how that may help support agriculture is, you know, the, the, right now the estimated costs to administrate programs seem rather high compared to the reward back to a farm. So fear I've had is that it's largely gonna resort to you know, the easy button of agriculture is gonna be supporting corn and soy farming, which is really not, you know, soy, soy is a major crop in North Carolina, but there's so many different crops that are grown here. Many farmers won't necessarily then value. These programs only focus on corn and soy. So I was curious in your research, what have you found to maybe um, either discount my fear to say it's probably not just gonna be corn and soy, or um, how could a corn and soy focused program actually be used to then later leverage to benefit a broader range of crops? Just curious your findings on that. 
So I guess there are two things. Um, I'm glad you brought up the soy corn. Um, I do want to also bring up, bring to attention that because of the regulatory system, usually most technological developments occur in corn and soybeans. So the big two genetically modified um, crops are corn and soybean, right? So we already have that disadvantage and it could be that this technology like could maybe only be for those cash crops. However, um, to address your concerns regarding the carbon market, uh, we do see some indications of uh, companies willing to extend out of the norm, but for the most part, it is annual crops. But we do see, for example, Bayer has some farms in the EU where they're growing some organic, uh, some vegetables, like organic vegetables and fruits. Um, some are including livestock, uh, uh, livestock climate smart practices. So there are, there is potential. Um, I think the biggest thing is these brokers are concerned about keeping their profit margin. And it's a little difficult when you have a lot of research done on corn and soybean in terms of even carbon sequestration, but not on other crops. Just a quick addition, the identifications of the genes that are involved with this type of mechanism have been found in in cacti, for example, so 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 it's so not the cash crops, but the transformations into the crops to conduct the field trials. The primary focus, at least from uh, the Salk Institute, is on the major cash crops. Um, so I think um, that doesn't necessarily calm the fear down, right? But uh, there seems to be an interest to primarily focus on on those cash crops. Okay. Um, before we move on to the next question, I just want to remind people that you can use the raise your hand function. You can also um, put your question in the chat, but if you're willing to ask it yourself, just use the raise your hand function and um, I'll call on you. Uh, Fred has a question. Fred, would you mind asking it? Sure, sure. Uh, nice presentation. Great. I love the way you guys interacted and went through it back and back and back, back to back. Wonderful. Um, so I guess, you know, you mentioned two technologies that seem to me very different in terms of their challenges, um, you know, with, um, you know, building bigger roots to sequester more carbon. You know, the expectation is that, of course, that might yield, lead to lower yield, whereas uh, changing soybean from a C3 to a C4 plant or rice from a C3 to a C4 plant uh, could be very advantageous in terms of yield. So I think their pathways could be pretty different. So anyway, I was just hoping you could comment on that. Yeah, so I can provide a little bit of insight. Um, so you're right, there are different pathways and that might result in different um, ends for the plants themselves. And especially if you have a situation where you're losing yield, that's a problem for your farmers. Um, you know, one thing that we wanted to explore is, you know, how do you how do you deal with that? So this is where the private carbon market and this is where government regulation can play a role. So they can find ways to incentivize or pay farmers for the loss they might experience in yield through either something like offsets from the carbon credit market. So that even if you're losing yield through this particular mechanism for developing the plant, the farmer is regaining those losses by being able to um, get offsets or trade or get financially paid for the offsets in terms of the carbon that's captured by those plants instead. 
Um, and government regulations and policies can also play a role here if this is important enough. But ultimately it comes down to is how effective are these plants at being able to cap carbon? And if they are that effective, then there's an incentive to provide the policy and the private market incentives to encourage farmers to grow these crops, even if they might be a loss in yield. Um, it's hard to say right now because we don't know the final product would look like, but these are things to keep in mind, is to make sure that if you are going to be able to capture more carbon, it's captured at a sufficiently enough level where it makes sense to be able to put in these other things, whether that's government subsidies, whether that's private market offset credits, um, but something to help farmers recoup the losses they might experience through yield. Yeah, I, I agree. That sounds great. I, you know, I guess the thing that I'm thinking about in terms of trade-offs in some ways is that if you do do the carbon capture in terms of the roots, you have to have a program that's going to help the farmers or whoever else deal with the yield loss. It might take a lot more money to develop from C3 to C4. It might be a much more complex thing, but then you don't have the other side where you have to pay the farmers. If, yeah. if indeed it's so good, then no matter what crop it is, if you could do it, it it's going to be accepted. So there's sort of a, also a policy issue there in terms of how do you decide. But of course, if we don't know what the big benefit's going to be from the C4 or the carbon sequestration, that leaves a lot of uncertainty. So I really like what you're doing is looking at both of those and thinking about them. Great. And one other thing we didn't really um, talk too much about is, you know, we, we focused a little bit and we talked a lot about carbon capture and sequestration from climate change. But one of the other aspects that also helps with is soil health, which is an important, you know, area for farmers as well, is these deeper roots allow for more carbon into the soil and that improves the soil quality overall, um, allowing for less reliance on perhaps things like fertilizers, but also improving the arability of land overall, which you know, is important for a lot of farmers. And so maybe that's an added advantage that makes it worth even the loss. Right, thank you. That, that just all brings out the complexity of, of this whole thing. Thanks. Um, yes, um, okay. I'm gonna read a question from Nora that uh, is in the chat and then we'll come back to Paul. Um, Nora asked, on the topic of farmer decision-making, I wonder how the presenters view the range of choices available to farmers over time. In the case of GE crops, it seems farmers had more choices available to them in the early days of introduction. Later, GE crops seemed to become the only viable option for some crops due partly to off-farm factors. Do you imagine carbon sequestration crops following a similar path what factors would maintain a broader range of choices for farmers over time? So um, I could jump on that very quickly. Dr. Han, thanks very much for that question. Um, most likely, if beyond the traits having to do with carbon capture sequestration, the various BCCS crops get stuck with other G traits, maybe pest resistance, maybe drought resistance. Um, that is most likely then going to encourage a situation where the choice then becomes limited because then a lot more farmers may drift along that direction because then they are looking probably for more set traits that focus on that. Uh, but then I get the sense if the future BCCS crops, the future bioengineered carbon capture sequestration crops mainly focus on trades that are res restricted to just that, 
then there is most likely a high chance that um, it may not become the dominant varieties in the space because others may opt for other options that are not sequestrating carbon, but then are providing them with uh, the ability to resist pests and probably resist other challenges that the farmers face on their fields. Okay, Paul, let's go back to you. Another question I popped in the chat is I think a lot of the carbon markets at the moment are focused on carbon sequestration in the soil. Um, but how about carbon sequestration into other products that result from the plants that are retained for a very long period of time? So the two examples I threw in there were hempcrete. Um, there's a company in Durham called Planted that is looking to sequester plant fibers into construction materials. Just curious if uh, any of your analysis have come across um, markets that will help support those types of products. Uh, first of all, I'm glad you mentioned uh, hemp crete because actually uh, Salvador is studying hemp um, and he brought that up as an alternative solution. So that's really awesome. Uh, so far, most uh, broker companies do require annual crops uh, and they focus more on just soil measurements. But however, I mean, the fact that they're making a lot of impressive innovations and like in trying new different strategies and like, for example, treated seeds or using microbes in the soil for enhanced carbon sequestration. I don't, I, I could imagine them willing to look at what you brought up in terms of long lasting materials, just because of all the changes they already have made. Yeah, and just to add about the hemp, um, the primary reason we did not include it in, in our analysis is because a big um, component of our program has to do with genetic engineering. And so there is no commercially available genetically engineered uh, cannabis, um, but it does seem like a, um, yeah, a good prospect, uh, particularly in Europe. I think they're a bit ahead because of their, um, the, 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 policy, the policies that they have surrounding uh, hemp, uh, whereas in the United States, it's, um, it's a bit more rigorous, but I do agree that that is a, um, yeah, an alternative solution that unfortunately we were not able to cover. Okay, thank you. Jason, you have a question. Um, would you mind reading it or asking it aloud? Sure. Um, so I was just thinking about, um, you know, it's, it's, and this is comes from a place of ignorance, but does, does soil get uh, saturated with carbon? Um, would you see diminishing returns of planting these crops in the same fields over multiple years? Um, is there some point where the amount of carbon released through natural processes is going to equal the amount that would be sequestered by an enhanced crop? And if so, that raises questions about how carbon credits would work for new plantings versus planting in the same soil that's been planted with GE or BECCS crops for say eight seasons in a row or something like that. Thanks. I can, I can start to answer that question. So the soil definitely has different pools or different levels of carbon stock and they all move differently. They all stay in that pool for different different amount of times. So that's definitely something 
that would need to be considered. Um, and the literature actually says knowing the history of the land and what has been planted and how long it's been there definitely helps knowing how much carbon is already present in the soil and what benefits you would get from BECCS crops. And that also goes to what Dana mentioned um, about carbon being so hard to measure. So that's something that would have to be worked out in order for us to determine if that um, benefit would diminish over time. And I'll add a second aspect to that is, so from a microbial perspective, that soil carbon is really essential. Um, a lot of microbial organisms in the soil that help with soil's chemical and physical properties, they rely on that carbon. Some of it comes from the plants themselves, and a lot of it comes from the carbon that's stored, that's stored in the soil that's usually brought in from the plants. Um, when you remove that, you actually see a significant decrease in the diversity of microbial life. Um, and we don't know everything about it yet. It's very complex and it's still an emerging area of research of the soil microbiome, but it does have impacts and there has been lowered um, microbial life and diversity in areas where there's less soil carbon. Um, and that overall seems to, that can impact plant health and performance. Yes, and in terms of temporal scales, to just add to what um, Jabin and Dilsia have mentioned, um, so, so organic carbon takes a long time. It could take about decades before you discover, before you're able to detect the changes that have happened. I just wanted to throw that out there. So that's what I meant when I said temporal changes to, to get any detectable differences. It could take decades for you to be able to discover that. Okay. And Eric, you have your hand up. Would you like to um, unmute yourself? Yeah, I just had a quick question. Uh, I don't really know much about this topic, but is there any interest to do this work in trees? Because, you know, trees, they do a great job already. May not, they probably would be a better um, <clears throat> source to do this as they are much bigger than row crops. And, you know, they you don't have to, countries down every you know year and so on um so is there any interest in improving tree uh, capturing carbon and other benefits that you guys are interested in yeah we definitely um have crossed a lot of literature about that our professors definitely sent us a lot of literature about that as well so that's definitely an option just something that we didn't want to focus on for our project i'll let somebody else speak on it as well Oh, I'd like to speak on it. I, I would invite Sebastian to follow up on me with this. But if you remember Sebastian's slide, he focused on the fact that this is not a technological fix and we're not focusing on technological fix. So this is just a solution that we propose and want to look at. But there are definitely many different solutions. I mean, if you look, at, if you remember the introductory slides, the biggest contributor to climate change mitigation uh, was solar. Right. And then it was. Um, reduce natural ecosystem conversion. So like converting wetlands into development, right? Wind energy. And then the last one, the fourth greatest one was agricultural carbon sequestration. Um, so it's a tool and I think it's good to have um, us looking at, scientists all looking at different ways to help mitigate climate change. Eli, go ahead. 
Um, thanks. Um, so I was wondering if you had considered the impacts on animal agriculture, meaning like ranching um, versus field crops, most of which are fed to animals, um, and where uh, a persuasive carbon offset might uh, alter the way uh, land is used to produce animals, like between directly grazing animals and growing food for animals, um, and whether that may have its own environmental consequences. So I can, I can jump in here. Um, so, you know, this was one of the great challenges we had. When you thought about climate change and agriculture, there were so many different avenues you could approach this from. You know, Eric mentioned trees, um, you're mentioning, you know, uh, cattle and animals and stuff. Um, and we really, we really struggled with trying to narrow down our focus. So while you're right, it does have an impact. Um, that is just really not something we explored in any um, real detail. We decided to focus on agricultural crops that were um, already the, the thought process being that, you know, a lot of these crops like corn, soy are already grown on the land. Um, farmers do it for animal feed or even for some human consumption. And um, when we were looking at researchers who were in this field, they were also focusing on these kinds of cash commercial crops. So it seemed the best way for us to get a start on this project was just to keep our focus on those. Um, and we didn't really go into deeply to looking at some of the other areas within agriculture where this would be an impact. Okay, I think this is a good place to wrap up. It's one o'clock now. Um, if you wanna check out the chat, there's a couple of comments from some of the students that expand on um, some of the topics we've been discussing that um, are interesting. So check those out before we uh, disconnect. But I just wanted to give a really um, great thanks to the students for a really, really nice presentation today. Very thoughtful, very, um, very good job. Um, and I want to thank everyone for coming to colloquium this semester. This is the last colloquium of this semester and we will be back um, August 23rd. Um, so I hope to see you next semester and thank you very much. I hope you have a good summer. <laughs>